encouraging you to uh, bring your Bibles. I know the uh, scriptures come up on the screen, but um, uh, please be people of the words. And uh, we're turning to Revelation chapter 3, to the sixth letter that uh, is recorded in John's Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7. And uh, next week, Greg is speaking for us. And then I think the following week, uh, we'll cover the seventh letter. So, chapter 3, verse 7 of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we put ourselves in the place of faith to listen, of expectancy, of eagerness to hear from you. Pray for understanding of this letter to the church and the believers at Philadelphia. And the ability to discern through these scriptures the now word of God. To us as people in this time and this place, we listen. We open the ears and eyes of our lives. I pray it wouldn't be boring. And I pray my brothers and sisters wouldn't be distracted. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? <laughs> You'll tell me if God answered it, probably. The uh, letter to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, there is no church, there is no church apart from Christ. It's an amazing thing to say. It should come up on the screen. There we go. There is no church apart from Christ. The where Jesus is, his church should gather. That he is the head of the church, and says we are joined to him in John's language of, uh, of John's gospel, that we are to abide in him, to remain in him, and that we will bear fruit. There is no church apart from Christ. That if we are to be church, if we are to be his people, if we are to be true disciples, we remain in him. This is one of the consistent themes, just a little bit of an overview of these six, seven letters that we've been covering. In each of these letters to these seven churches, in what 
is now modern-day Turkey. There is this repeated one phrase, again and again, at the end and the start to the angel of the church, the particular messenger to the particular people in a particular place. And the ending, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That in Jesus' announcement, in Jesus' instruction, his encouragement and his challenge, there are many differences to these different churches, many circumstances that he has to affirm and correct. But there are two things that are always constant. The first is that the Spirit speaks. The God speaks. Again and again, God speaks to his people. We can be sure of that. Even today, he is speaking. And secondly, the people listen. It's a sorry state of affairs if his people kind of go, la, 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 la. For God's words are true and wonderful and life-giving. The listening is one of those common tasks of the church, but it's hard to do. That as we make that time to pray, as we make time to read those scriptures, as we take time, hopefully daily, if not more than once a day, to stop, we listen. The church should ultimately be like a listening post, listening for him. No church can be a church unless it listens. It's worth noting that nature hasn't equipped humanity with ear lids. But we do compensate for nature's oversight by developing selective listening. We're conveniently deaf to the sounds that challenge our pride or command our obedience or interrupt our fantasies or call to attention our lapses. But God is passionate about his church. He loves it. He loves us. And he's at work. He's at work amongst us. Let us listen. We hear God's words that create and command, that comfort and direct, that save. Words that make all things new. It's a privilege to hear. In these seven letters to the seven churches, it starts very often with Jesus saying, I know your deeds. Or it could be translated, I discern. So that the letter and the message that follows demonstrates accurately the knowledge that Jesus has of everything that's going on. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. And to this particular letter of the church in Philadelphia, you're all thinking of America or cream cheese at that point. Let's get that out of the way. The church of Philadelphia, it was a city established around fraternal brotherly love, hence its name. This church is affirmed for its brave steadfastness, of its faithfulness, its, its hanging on to, of being just as Christ would want it. And in the world's eyes, it doesn't have great kind of CV of accomplishments. We, we looked a few weeks ago at Fire Time, and he said, I know your love and good deeds and perseverance and great things you do more than you did at first. To the church at Philadelphia, there isn't that affirmation. But Jesus affirms them for their brave steadfastness. And it's just worth remembering that we're not measured in Jesus' eyes as we are sometimes in the world. We're not measured in Jesus' eyes by our contribution to society or evaluated according to our potential. It's not that if we don't make grade A standard, he casts us out. It's not that if we've not reached 100,000 for people for Jesus, I'm not saying we shouldn't aspire and do that. 
But he first loves us because he loves us for who we are before we go out and serve. He affirms the church in Philadelphia, even though they're weak. Notice none of these churches that he writes to, the letter comes from God, had been in existence very long, less than 50 years. And to those churches, each one of them are doing, well, most of them were doing well, but some of them, some of them needed some correction. Good to know that no church is perfect. Not even this one. You know that. But sometimes in our attitude, we, be, we have this expectancy that it should be better. Yes, it should. But sometimes that expectation translates to cynicism or discouragement or standing aside and opting out and withdrawing something to become sideliners and saying, well, I'm associated with this people, but I'm not really 100%. It's not what God wants. He says, there is no church apart from Christ. If you're in Christ, he calls you to be in the church. And I'm delighted he's called you to this place. Don't be on the sidelines. Don't kind of stand to the side and think, well, I've been let down or hurt or passed over or ignored or belittled. Be fully part of it. And in so doing, we grow as he would intend. A quick summary to these letters, just to give an overview as well. Uh, What would be the summation of each of these uh, letters to the church in Ephesus? We're trained to love. I'm trying to remind us that it's not just that we take the particular seven uh, letters, seven churches, and we think, which are we more like and disregard the the rest? We learn from each one. In Ephesus, we're trained to love, to the church in Smyrna, to suffer. In Pergamum, to tell the truth, to the church at Thyatira, the the command to be holy, to Sardis, to be authentic and real, to Philadelphia, as we will see, to be in mission, and as we'll see next time in Laodicea, to worship using things to praise God and receiving gifts to serve God. A diagnostic for healthy church. You see, for as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and the unrighteous to repentance, and there's no indication that he's changed his policy on that, and now in the 21st century, he's only going to call the nice people and the sorted people. Not at all. He still calls the broken and the fractured. And because of that, churches are going to be an embarrassment to the fastidious and an affront to the upright The church is to the gospel what the body is to the person. Let me say that again. The church is to the gospel what the body is to the person. As Jesus writes to these churches, some of them are really struggling. He has strong words of correction. But a corrupt church still is functioning as a church. Even though it's failing, it's still his. He warns them he will remove his lampstand, his spirit. But it still reflects him. Dirty lampstands don't extinguish Christ's light. Conversely, a kind of great and prettified and and, uh, kind of gaudy church, despite itself, still is his body. Polished gold doesn't outshine Christ's light. The Christ has purposed in his body to be made known. That's what we're for. 
And so we get this uh, little picture. The church is the bride of Christ. I kind of like this. I don't quite know what she's doing or how on a wedding day she's got to be in a field of mud. But sometimes that seems how it is as a church. Muddy and solid, but Christ has called us to be his bride, his church. Amen? We're not perfect. But as he speaks and we listen, we change. Don't be angry towards the church. We must admit it, most disappointments in the church are because of failed expectations. You see, we expect a disciplined army of committed women and men who courageously laid siege to the worldly powers and going for the gospel. Isn't that what you expect? And instead, we find some people who are more concerned with getting rid of the weeds in the lawn. We expect a community of saints who are mature in the virtues of love and mercy and instead we find ourselves working on a church supper where there's more gossip than casseroles. We expect to meet minds that are informed and shaped by the great truths and rhythms of Scripture and find persons with intellectual energy that's barely sufficient to get them from the comic page to the sports page. Jesus is real with the church. It's important we examine and change our expectations and in so doing see how God sees the church. The church isn't what we organize, but what God has given us. Not the people we want to be with, but the people God gives us to be with. It's a fellowship, a family, created by the descent of the Holy Spirit, in which we submit ourselves to the Spirit's affirmation and reformation and his motivation. Jesus loves his church. He loves us. And so he speaks to the church at Philadelphia. It's full of imagery, keys, of open doors and shut doors, and of pillars, of signatures, of names. I know something about doors and keys. I locked myself out last week. I went out, and I failed to have my keys, and I suddenly realized, and I couldn't get in. It was really frustrating, and it started to rain and there was my locked door, and none of my windows were open. I was out. On the evening of Monday, the 25th of September in 2006, four masked gunmen burst into the home of Marie O'Neill, a few miles north of Dublin. Shouting and brandishing their weapons, they quickly tied up her husband and her two daughters with plastic cable ties. They bundled them into a car and sped off into the night. Left alone, paralyzed with fear, Marie O'Neill was about to discover why they had chosen her home that night. It was because she owned a small piece of metal, no more than eight centimeters long, a piece of metal which would furnish her kidnappers with 800,000 euros before they safely released her family. Marie O'Neill was a bank manager, and the piece of metal was the key to the safe of the bank that she worked in. Jesus says he holds the key of David. And to the church of Philadelphia, that's an encouragement. We, we don't often use it as a, 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 you know, when we have open praise and worship. You hold the key of David. Who's last prayed that? Have you? Maybe we say, well, you hold the key of death and Hades in chapter 1. He says that. We thank God that he's gone through death and risen into life and death isn't to be defeated and we need not fear death. Is that right? 
Yes. But do we use that affirmation? He holds the key of David. What is that about? Well, uh, the verse is up there. In Isaiah 22, and um, there's this little incident in the Old Testament. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. We've heard that before, haven't we? And what he shuts, no one can open. In Isaiah, there's this prophetic kind of envisioning, this echo of Jesus who would truly hold the key of David. Eliakim is this imperfect picture of the one who will truly hold this rule. What's it about? Well, Eliakim was one of Hezekiah's servants. And Hezekiah, being the king in Jerusalem at the time, gave Eliakim a key. And this key was a very important key because this key would unlock the temple and the palace treasury rooms. And inside the temple and palace treasury rooms were all the riches and all the, the great precious things of the nation. Can you imagine how amazing that would be? I just read uh, on a, a website, um, on the BBC News website, there's a temple in India that they've just discovered, they haven't seen for 150 years, vaults beneath it, that they've just opened and there is riches beyond riches that have been stored up in this temple in Kerala. And they're like, my goodness, it's hundreds of thousands of rupees, which is still a lot of money. It's millions of pounds of treasure in there. The key opened up the place of riches. Now later in Isaiah, in chapter 39, verse 2, something goes a little bit wrong. Hezekiah received the envoys. It should be on the screen. There we are. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or all his kingdom that Hezekiah didn't show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to the king Hezekiah and asked, what did these men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet answered, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. And the prophet kind of says, what have you done? Because Babylon were the the nation in ascendancy. They were the new kids on the block. And the Assyrian Empire was in uh, diminishing. And the Babylonians kind of were coming to suss out Israel. And they showed them right into their house and showed them what riches there were. And they got to see how secure or not Jerusalem was. Hezekiah was kind of bragging and showing off, look at all this new, you know, it's my crib, you know, if you're into that on MTV, come and see my crib, come and, you know, see the big bathroom and all the big uh, fancy things that I've got established in my house. Isn't it amazing? And you can be jealous. But the Babylon envoys were sussing them out and knew they would come and take it away. But in this letter to the church, this reminder that Jesus holds the key of David. That in other words, it's not now located in a temple or in a palace, but Jesus holds a more important key. That Jesus, in what he has done, in risen and being at the right hand of the Father, now has the authority to unlock for us all the riches of God's kingdom 
for us. Do you get that? That all the resources in the purposes of God are made available to us through Jesus. He holds the key to unlock that. Isn't that great? See, Jesus is the true Eliakim, the true holder of God's royal treasure room, the treasures of which make Marie O'Neill's key look rather second-rate. Do any of you collect autographs? No. None of you would be at Wimbledon kind of coming to say, you know, kind of, Nadal, you know, I'd quite like you to sign this uh, T-shirt for me, please. The winner, maybe the winner of Wimbledon today. Every year, Stanley Gibbons, compiled, uh, the company, publishes its suggested price list for stamps and signatures. In 2008, Niels Armstrong's, if you wanted to buy it, was at £5,500. Winston Churchill pips him a little bit at just under 7000 Princess Diana at 8500 James Dean at 9500 The most expensive item on the list, a photograph signed by all four of the Beatles, changed hands at £24,000. They're worth a lot of money. The Stanley Gibbons list misses out another collection of signatures worth far more than all the others put together. That Jesus tells us that the most valuable collection of signatures in the world is not written on a photo or an album sleeve, but on us. He says he will sign us three ways, with the name of God, the Father, with the name of Jesus, the Son, and remarkably this new Jerusalem, that we will be signed, known as his people, the church. There's a, a, a signature, if you're interested, of someone famous. Who's that? All the ladies know that. What does the signature say? To the church in Philadelphia, they needed to know and be encouraged the fact that God writes his name on them. That for us as brothers and sisters, to know that we are his, that his name is upon us. It speaks of authenticity. Mr. Kellogg signed each box himself to say it was authentic, it was genuine. The God signs us as we put our trust in him, as we yield our life to him. He signs us to say we are authentically his, that we belong to him, that he has given us his authenticity. We are not forgeries. We are not deceptions. We are genuine articles. To this struggling little church in Philadelphia, great to know that God Almighty himself has given them the authentic sign and signature that they are his People, whether the world is changed or not, they belong to him and they are sure of that. They are not counterfeits, not just claiming to pretend at doing that. They're authentic. Signatures speak of ownership. Signature speaks of ownership. That Andy, in the story of Buzz Lightyear, the child wrote his name on their feet. And that for the toys in the story, his signature is the bedrock of their faith that they are owned and loved and protected and cherished and not destined for a museum or to be sold off as second-hand junk. And God wants us to savor this promise and let these names he's written upon us shape our lives even more than Andy shapes Buzz's or Woody's. And thirdly, A signature 
speaks of authority. If you want to write a check, you've got to sign it. If you want to send a legal document, it is signed. To demonstrate that the message comes in the name. Even on the £20 note, it's got a signature on it saying, the chief officer of the treasury promises to pay. It comes with authority. To ignore the signature of the sender is to defy the sender. That God, when he sees his church, writes his name upon us. We can't see it. It's not like a tattoo. But he signs us. And it speaks of the fact that we belong to him. It speaks of the fact that we have authenticity. And it speaks of the fact that because we belong to him, he gives us authority. Great to know in this in this mission of the church in Philadelphia, because he then goes on to talk about these open and shut doors, that the Philadelphians had a little strength of their own, but Jesus tells them that his authority means that when a door is open, no one can shut it. There's no power, no principality, nothing that can shut what God has opened. That an open door speaks of opportunity. A closed door speaks of chances finished. Just worth saying... For those amongst you, if you don't yet believe in Jesus, there is an open door of salvation. If you've not yet trusted yourself to him and asked him into your life, the scriptures say today is the day of salvation. The opportunity is now here for you to enter into this family and belong to Jesus and his family. Jesus says he is the door. Enter through him once for all. The door also speaks of the opportunity to serve. Paul, writing in the letter to Corinth, says, when I, I, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door of effective work has opened to me, and there will be many who oppose me in Colossians. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Proclaim that I may clearly proclaim it as I should. The brothers and sisters, we live in a day of opportunity. That we hear of places in the world that are shut. I no doubt we'll hear with Greg next week of the challenges of, of the gospel in certain parts of the world. But we have freedom, an open door of opportunity. We have a God who opens doors. Does that encourage you? That sometimes doors seem to be barred, but they are opened as we pray and call out, open the doors, change the hearts and lives. Do you believe that? My brother and sister Chandra and Shaker tell a great story of one of their church plants in Janaram. It's a, a, a town, a village, 40 minutes north of Hyderabad. They went to plant a church there. They, they do that by going to a tree, singing worship songs and saying, come anyone who's sick, we'll pray for you. They went there. The Hindu nationalists in the town came and they said, we don't want Christians here. Go away. We know where we live. We know your car registration. We will blow you up if you come back here. And they went. They, they felt that the door was not open at that time, but they, they didn't forget about Janaram. They went back, and for six months, they prayed and prayed and prayed together as a church, saying, God, open the door to this place, please. And six months later, they went back in the same car to the same place, to the same tree, and preached the gospel. And they saw healings, and now there's a church plant at an orphanage based there. And there's still been a rocky road of opposition. But the door was opened. Because Christ opens the door. And what he opens, no one will shut. A gentle murmur of appreciation. 
Brothers and sisters, I know it seems like hard work witnessing to your non-Christian friends or partners or children. Pray that the door would open. Brothers and sisters, as we move forward, we're praying that this church would grow, not because we want to just have lots of people, but it means lives for Jesus. And we need to pray and pray again and move out that the door would continue to be open and people would come through the door of Christ. Amen? Amen. And not be discouraged. Of not thinking, well, it's just we've tried and the door's shut and let's not go in. If I took that attitude in my locked house, I would still be outside. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, hasn't it? What he opens, no one can shut. His name is honors the authority that is given us, that he exerts his authority through us as the great shepherd and savior and healer and forgiver and deliverer and helper and provider. Let that register with you, church, of us. The church in Philadelphia was under strong persecution at the hands of the Jewish leaders. The Christians there felt feeble in strength and weak and without much to offer. But that's a good place to be. It says, we can't do it, God. You must. When we're weak, he's strong. And the final image he uses, just as we draw to communion, is that of a pillar. He says, if you prevail, I will make you a pillar in the temple. For the Philadelphians, that meant so much to them because where it's located as a city, it was prone to strong earthquakes. And again and again in its history, the earthquakes would come and the buildings and the temples and the pillars would be knocked over. And as Jesus writes to the church at Philadelphia, he says, I will make you a pillar that will stand and never fall in my temple. They understood that to mean that there is no power, no authority, nothing that could come and shake them or remove them or take their standing away from them because Christ has established them. No earthquake can do that. Great encouragement. In the storms and the battles and the challenges and the circumstances and the stuff that is being thrown at you, as you remain in Christ, he will make you stand and prevail. Brothers and sisters, the church has an open door before us that no one can shut. Our opportunity that Jesus holds the key of David. In other words, the riches and resources and the authority of Christ himself is with us. And the overcomers will be pillars in the temple of God. Let that be your security. We come to the table, to the author, the beginner, the writer, and the perfecter of our faith and life as a church. We come as people who, who aren't fully together, who are weak, who struggle, who aren't perfect, but he welcomes us and says, draw near in faith, receive, be strengthened, be renewed, be re-envisioned, receive new life. Let's pray.